Hi, I'm Alex Holmes and welcome to Time to Talk. Each Monday I sit down with inspirational people to have a wholehearted conversation about what makes them tick, topics that are important and the small ways in which they are endeavouring to change the world. We unpick the things that matter from mental health, the inequities of society, positive and healthy masculinity and more. There is so much to learn from every conversation. And if you love books, don't forget to check out the Friday episode of Books That Move Me. Go straight there. As ever, if you are looking for podcast studios that are clean and very simple to book, don't forget to use my discount code Alex7135 over at pirate.com where you can book studios from London in Hackney, Dalston, Wembley and Tottenham all the way over to New York, Los Angeles and Germany. It's so easy, it's so simple to use. Get £10 off your booking if you use my referral code Alex7135 over at pirate.com. Now let's get on with the show. Today's guest is Nova Reed. Nova is a TED speaker, writer and diversity and anti-racism campaigner. She's dope. We had a conversation about what her experience growing up in Hertfordshire in England was like, to which we spoke about the first time she realised she was black. We chatted about Rishi Sunak's comments that people who work in the arts would have to retrain as two people who work in the arts and Nova being a former performer, that didn't go down too well, as you can imagine. And we also spoke about what it means to be an anti-racist and how we can combat microaggressions, challenging negative behaviours that contribute to poor effects these have on oppressed minorities and our mental well-being. It is a jam-packed episode and it's such a good conversation. I love Nova. She's amazing. Don't forget to check out all the things that she's doing. More importantly, her book, The Good Ally, will be out in all good bookstores in autumn 2021. And I hope to get her on the show closer to then. But you can also pre-order her book now in all the usual places. So without further ado, let's welcome Nova Reed to Time to Talk. Welcome to Time to Talk. Thank you for joining me, Nova. I'm here with Nova Reed. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Oh, such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. Oh, no worries. So, as everybody knows, I start this conversation with the big old question, how are you? <laughs> how are you doing? How are you doing? Do you, do you know, um, I appreciate this question more now because I've never been able to not answer it honestly. Mm-hmm. And what I love now is that more people are just giving a real answer rather than this automation I think we've become accustomed to yeah I'm fine when actually we're not Mm -hmm. so I am riding the waves that's kind of my jam at the moment Mm -hmm. going with the days that feel heavy and just surrendering to them and um feeling inspired and excited by days that feel more hopeful um and all of the stuff that comes in between that. So yeah, today is a day where I'm just riding, riding the waves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 just cracking on. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Um, what is a quote that has brought you this far, or has inspired you, or one of your favourite quotes? I have many. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that's coming to mind in this moment is I'm going to probably butcher it. <laughs> But it's something like we are, uh, change doesn't come from some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for and we are the change that we seek. Mm-hmm. And Barack Obama said that. And I that one is really uh, resonant for me because people often feel like they need to wait for an individual, a leader, a government to create change. Mm-hmm. When I think we don't realise how much individual power we all hold. Um, and that one feels resonant today. Okay. Okay. You know, looking around at the world and some of the things that are going on, um, it's a, it, it is a big question about like the, the change that we want to see and all of these different, um, all of these different things that, because it, it, it does raise several questions around hope and about what we want yeah. to see. And, you know, every generation has these, you know, ideals about what they want to see for the next or what they want to see throughout theirs. And um, we're, in, we're, we're in very, very ah, specific times, <laughs> very specific yeah. times. Um, so, yeah, it's tricky. 
thank you for joining me. And, you know, I'm, I, I kind of want to just bulldoze into it, man. Um, <laughs> Go for it. Okay, so, all right. So just to break down what you do and who you are, you know, you've got inspirational TED speaker, you've got writer, you know, you're a diversity and anti-racism campaigner. Um, before we get to all of that, before we get there, tell me about what it was like growing up in Hertfordshire in the 80s. Oh, you're giving away my age, Alex. You're giving away my age. Tell um, me what, what it was like growing <laughs> up in Hertfordshire <laughs> in the 21st uh, century. Well, this is. <laughs> I love the vagueness. What well, I. So, uh, you know, it felt what was normal okay. until it wasn't. Right. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, growing up in a happy home, a brother that used to you know bully <laughs> bully me and we would bicker it was just oh everything felt normal until it wasn't mm-hmm. and a defining moment that I speak about in my TED talk was when I realized that I was black mm-hmm. and that somehow that didn't that made me feel other mm-hmm. it made me feel like I was abnormal and it wasn't because I was it was because of all the programming I was receiving and in a particular moment a young girl um was was pointing at me and and asking her mum why I was the same colour as Pooh. Mm. And then, so kind of all the sort of subtle programming and the messages and I would see, I wouldn't see many people who looked like me on TV. I didn't have dolls that had skin like mine. Um, There just wasn't representation other than kind of charity adverts that had children and black children in poverty Mm. with flies buzzing around them so when this little girl asked me ask her mum why I was the same colour as Pooh I thought well I I obviously don't look like the rest of the people around me Mm. because I'm dirty it must be the case because those children on the advert got flies buzzing around Mm. them so for me I was seven years old then and trying to make sense of the world and who I was Um, and that was devastating for me and that kind of really was the a, a, a little mini trauma I experienced that has been the catalyst for the work that I do now. Because mm, mm. that then led into a whole load of low self-esteem, self-hate. And then, of course, you grow older and you experience more overt acts of racism. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, growing up in Hertfordshire. Yeah. yeah. How, did you kind of, how did you and your family kind of work through that? I mean, it's not necessarily... It's not because... As much as, you know, when we have these experiences, because I had similar experiences growing up, but um, it's like, it happens, and you kind of just go back into your family, and you're just like, this is just everyday sort of thing. And like, some people, for me, it was very much like, oh, this is an everyday occurrence, or this is something that's not big enough to come back to my parents and talk to them about. Um, What Was there any sort of conversation with your family about it at all? I mean, I, I don't remember, but my dad and mum certainly do because they would talk to me about, you know, some of the things I used to do. Mm. Um, like I used to douse myself in powder to try and make myself white. And I don't remember that. But um, so they were, I mean, they were always doing stuff to reinforce a positive black identity. They were doing that anyway. I remember mm. my dad, this is before I was seven, going on this big, what felt like a big adventure to me to buy this cricket doll. These were these big dolls (laughs) that used to talk and I I was obsessed by them and he wanted to get a black one and he drove to London somewhere and he got the last black one on the shelf because he was really keen that I had positive representation. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and especially my dad who, who is a, has always been a bit of an activist anyway, but that didn't stop that the power of those messages and being exposed to the system of white supremacy from impacting me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So how did you, so, yeah, with that, with regards to like the black representation and then working through those particular, you know, um, conversations with yourself, like how did you, how did, what, what, when you, as you grew up, as you grew older, when did you start to kind of reconcile with that? Like, as a young person, putting, like, you know, powder on skin, some people used to pinch their noses, some people used to do all sorts of things, like, like, very, like, thin their lips and whatnot. Yeah. Um, 
when did that when did you start seeing when did you start moving in moving out of self-hate and into i'm presuming a period of self-acceptance and love i think i don't i think it's just it's always been a journey and Mm. i've always um i've done the the most work on myself in in sort of my 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 early 20s mid 20s onwards Mm -hmm. because you kind of just roll with it it is the way that it is Mm. uh you just you carry on part of the messaging that my parents got was assimilation Mm -hmm. which was also what they were role modeling Mm -hmm. so that was how I coped with it it's like it just is what it is this is just how it's going to be and I just need to code switch essentially and of course that you know that has a detrimental impact on our on our well-being um and I guess I think I used to hide it well so I used to I used to act Mm-hmm. Uh, sing and dance I used to be in the performing arts industry okay. and so that was my vehicle for expression mm-hmm. so what I couldn't find the words to articulate mm-hmm. it would come out in dancing it would come out in hip-hop it would come out in crumping mm-hmm. it would come out in me belting these big top notes mm-hmm. so that was a real uh, it was a lifeline for me mm-hmm. actually the arts at that stage um mm-hmm. and then and then kind of what happened you start i started to experience the more systemic discrimination so mm-hmm. well nova darling you, you you're never going to play that role you're black mm-hmm. that kind of those kind of limitations i was like well this feels different than the monkey chance and all of the other overt stuff um and that's what really started to eat and to break down my confidence mm. and my self-esteem. So uh, I, I eventually left that industry mm. through, my comp- uh, through my self-esteem just being on the ground. Mm. And also I had an injury mm-hmm. and I retrained and I retrained to work in mental health. Mm. So that was the catalyst because I was working with young people's mental health as part of a well-being service. And there's no way you can support anybody else's mental health without having your own ship in some kind of order. Mm. And so before I even started working with young people, I had to go through a year's worth of initial training. Mm. And some of that included psychotherapy. Some of that included just a whole load of stuff around mental health. And I also did some NLP. Mm -hmm. I did an NLP certification. And it was that process, the NLP and the self-interrogation, because I did my NLP with some clinical psychologists. Yeah. You want to so explain they, briefly what NLP neuro, is? Yeah. Neuro-linguistic programming. So it's a way of, it's a, it's a form of applied psychology, okay. and it's basically understanding human behaviour and coaching people through change, I guess, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an accessible way. So it's like, let's look at what the problem is today. And let's help you move forward rather than let's look at what's going on in the past. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, the training was let's look at what's going on in the past. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff around racism was coming up. And I was like, I don't know why this is present. Like, I've dealt with that. I'm much more confident than than I was a decade ago. Um, And it just brought all that and as well as the sort of counselling training, just brought all my stuff up to the surface. And it's like, here you go. Mm -hmm. Now you need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So really from my mid 20s onwards is when I started to self-interrogate and Mm -hmm. and deal with that stuff. Yeah. I wanted to push back on something just quickly, like I mean, because we've passed it, but I want to go back there. Just what did you think about what Rishi Sunak has said about the arts, about people having to retrain? And and and, yeah, um, what do you think about that? Going to wind me up now. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, what it's going to show, what what this period of time is showing us is how mm. is who the government values mm-hmm. in society and who they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it also goes to show how dangerous it can be to have a homogenous group of people making decisions about an entire country, mm-hmm. and they're so disconnected to all, even from when they were first. Um, you know, coming up with these lockdown rules that felt like they were just being born out of nothing, mm-hmm. where they were saying, "Oh, well, you can only be, you can only be with one family." Well, what about the pe- what about the families that are co-parenting? It's like these basic things that they weren't considering. Mm. And arts is such it, it makes such a meaningful contribution to our lives mm. in the day to day, in what we consume in TV, in what we read, in what we look at. 
Um, but it also has such a wonderful and vital impact on our ability to express and also our ability to either lose ourselves or mm. have hope, um, feel like we're contributing. It, it's just so many, yeah. it's just, yeah, I'm, it's upsetting because it's my former life as well. So I have lots of colleagues who are, who were in Cats the Musical and all these mm. other big shows and they're literally struggling. Yeah. They've got nothing. How do you just retrain? Yeah, how do you retrain? And because it's really interesting because when you, said like yeah because my heart goes out to performers in particular because especially um, stage performers just because it's like it's a hard enough industry already anyway Um, yeah and you know and then like to kind of and it's difficult you know when it comes to age and then obviously as you say gender and all these other things but then when to just when a pandemic happens it's like or nobody can plan plan for that and then it just creates yeah. this. But it's what you said about, um, you know, you, you found it as your form of expression. Yeah. And your, and, and what I find in like is, is that for a lot of black yeah, people... Hugely. Yeah, hugely. Yeah. Hugely. Um, because I think there's that added layer when... You, I can only speak from my position as a, as a black woman. Mm. When you've become so used to swallowing, biting your tongue, not really saying mm. what's on your heart and mind, mm. either through fear of retribution Absolutely. or that you're going to be gaslit, mm-hmm. we start to swallow it. And if we've got no vehicle of expression, that can turn itself inwards in mental ill health, in physical health, ill health, or both. So there are so many... Um, people whose creativity is a I, I i say it and i mean it it's a lifeline for them mm. like it's no coincidence that there's an increase in mental ill health right now mm. um all that that industry generally can attract people who've had uh experiences with mental ill health mm. Mm. and yeah and i just yeah i find that so interesting in itself it's just that you know you know, with the um, if there's no form of expression, if there's no way to express on stuff, it kind of it will either it will come out of us, yeah, either creatively or not. And it's like trying yeah. to, and that's and that again probably manifests itself in stress, in anger, in yeah. illness, and all of those different things. And um, yes, I find that really interesting when it comes to black people and um, um, yeah, people disadvantaged positions um and their expression and their level of how that and how they show up in the world um mm. and yeah so whether that be sport or whatever it's just kind of yeah. it's, it's just an interesting kind of like correlation to see there um but yeah so you've entered into so you've you know you you were a, you know an actress singer and you went to work in mental health so then tell me about holistic therapy and what that what that look like for you and what what that was like what that is like as a career I mean when I first so I was working as part of a, a student well-being service and when I first was doing my training it would have been in 2010 mm-hmm. and I started doing uh, the foundation of a, a, a of psychodynamic counseling and I remember thinking there's some mis- there's some stuff here that's <coughs> there's some stuff here that's not speaking to the nuance of racism as trauma. It was like it was just glossed over. Like it, it wasn't. I mean, uh, for example, when when I was working with uh, young people and we would be my team would be risk assessing whether or not they needed to be referred mm-hmm. to uh, some kind of clinical service. Mm-hmm. We did this. Uh, we did this form. Uh, I can't remember the name of the risk assessment form. I can't remember the jargon. But it would. It would. It was ascertain where they are on that risk, whether they would be contained and and would be able to manage with self help, or whether they needed some kind of urgent intervention. And it would ask things about, you know, what's your experiences, and you know, on a scale of one to ten, you know, how anxious are you? How stressed are you? Do you think you're depressed? All these kinds of questions. And then it asked you. What do you think has caused you to... What do you think may have contributed to your illness? Mm -hmm. Nowhere on that application, nowhere on that risk assessment form is is even racism. And and from my colleagues who still work in that sector, who are uh, clinical psychologists and uh, psychotherapists, I don't believe that that is 
still a question mm. to my knowledge yeah if it's not anyone let me know but <laughs> it's still not been treated mm. as a, a form of trauma yeah racism yeah this is, what, this is what i found when um over the summer with regards to george floyd and brianna taylor and the numerous black bodies that are just being taken from us and um and it was just like every, I just found that on social media everything was overwhelming everything overwhelms me to be honest yeah. but um, it was super overwhelming and it was just like I was just thinking like racism is trauma like if you understand trauma you understand the, yeah, the of effects course. of racism um, yeah. and I just and it was really interesting just to kind of be like it was like it was like this kind of awakening moment for a lot of people that were just like oh my god that is yeah. what it is and I'm just like um there have been years and years and years. There's been years and years of history, all of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And like and it's now that you probably that you're that you're having a faint amount of kind of oh, I understand what's going on, this is what it is. And mm. and I'm and I'm and I'm curious just to be like, all right, so that was in the summer. Things have died down quite a bit. Like we haven't heard much about like, you know, we haven't heard much of what's going on with regard to the movement and um, you know, uh, a lot of the people that suddenly followed me um, have kind of yeah. like all of, kind of dissipated a little bit because I wasn't. You had that too, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking because I'm not the person. I'm not going to stand. I don't stand on a pedestal to to, to to only speak about what it's like being a black. You know what I mean? Yeah. My, my because we're more than we're more than our our, our racial identity. Absolutely. Like we're human. We're full humans, mm. and that that to me is the essence. For so many centuries our community has been dehumanised, mm-hmm. we're literally still not seen as full, full humans. Like, mm-hmm. you will serve me, you will talk about race only. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it, it doesn't... Nothing computes anymore. Everything's everything's confusing. The algorithm is off. I don't know what's going on. Oh. Everybody <laughs> keeps saying, I don't understand what's happening anymore. But then this leads into kind of the conversation that I wanted to have about anti-racism and the work you do in, like, diversity and that stuff. And... Um, it, What flights are there? Where to start? I know, I was like, uh, anti-racism. Yes. In a sentence. <laughs> what is it? And it shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be, it, I mean, I find that it's a very, it's a, it's, it's a, it is a sentence that has a lot um, of behind it. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. why do people find it so confusing to understand? Uh, uh, for me, and this is the way I teach, and this is how I try to role model, anti-racism is about collective healing. Mm-hmm. Okay. To me, that's how I simplify it. Um, there is a lot of collective shame mm-hmm. uh, that we carry as a society, um, which has led us to where we are today with being unable. Like, we can have conversations about race with ease mm. within our own community, but cross-racially, mm. whew, whole different ball game. Mm-hmm. Um so for me, it's about collective healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about us being able to heal from the trauma of racism. And it's about white people and people who hold white privilege to heal from their collective shame. Okay. Only when they heal from their collective shame and they acknowledge, they acknowledge that as a result of, you know, as a result of uh, mass genocide for centuries upon centuries of black, on black bodies... Mm that means they have had societal privileges Mm. and they still benefit from those today. If we don't acknowledge where we came from um, and to acknowledge that as fact, we'll never move forward. And and one of the reasons people find it difficult to acknowledge that as fact, it brings up a whole load of guilt and shame. Some of that is transgenerational stuff that they're carrying. Yeah. It's not it's not theirs like they're not individually responsible for it just like just like we're not individually responsible for what our ancestors did or didn't do but we carry this collective trauma mm. and collective shame and we won't move further forward until those things are addressed addressed yeah and talk to me a bit talk to me a bit more about collective shame mm. um i find it super interesting in the reactions that people have to racism and when people call out the word racism, call out a racist and also speak about race, um, 
my one point of contention right now is capitalizing the ble the b the b when I write for magazines or write for whatever. My one my my one point of contention. What you want to or you don't? I want to basically capitalize b yeah. when I'm talking about yeah. black people yes. as the as the ideology as community. and the community yeah. and whatnot. Um, and I think that and I and you know that's kind of that's been an ongoing conversation for a lot of people within copywriting and writing professions and whatnot. Um, But I'm also just questioning, why is it a conversation? Why does it matter? Like, just capitalise the B when people want to use it. Also, (laughs) it's like, I wanted wanted to get to the point where, because when I'm thinking about it now, what I'm thinking about is that when you write, when you capitalise the B, and then that goes then into a copy edit, into an edit, and then that that becomes a conversation... Mm. Should we should we actually capitalize it? Should we decapitalize it? What is it? I personally, I mean, I'm I I'm writing a book at the moment, mm-hmm. and I've I just had this email conversation with my my uh, byline editor today, mm-hmm. saying keep keep your eye out on my copy because um, uh, the automatic spell checker will make the B small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want capitalised B's throughout when I'm talking about the black community, but the the auto spell check makes it small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, we've literally, and, and then I gave her background as to why I am intentionally doing that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that just speaks to the uh, in a way that speaks to collective shame because then it's just when you when you put that back into someone's face, it's like oh my god, like. Why is it this question? And then it's a question of should we do it? Should we not? Should we even say that we're going to do it or just kind of keep it, just, just, it. just turn it back? Um, yeah, so just if you have anything else to add on collective shame, I'd be super interested to I hear. I think it's, it, it's a big one. Um, and I think as, you, as you've already, you, you touched upon it, when we don't look at our shame, when we don't acknowledge our shame, when we don't deal with our shame, it turns into anger, it turns into defensiveness, it turns into passive aggression, it turns into manipulation, it turns into some of the ugliest behaviours that we see from people who are in positions of power. And those aren't grounds for change. It also it also can lead to complete disengagement, which you will have you will have experienced mm-hmm. from people who are white or who are white privilege mm-hmm. that they just can't even go there or yeah. they won't go there. Yeah, um, and that that is not a breeding ground for change. Yeah, it's just because, it's just difficult, and you know it's like and and it's just that fear of obviously that consistent fear of being gaslit. Am I actually just being too quote unquote too anything? Am I being too militant am i being yeah. too serious am i being too um stuck in the past am i being too any of that stuff um and i just think yeah as you said it's just a, that, that acknowledgement needs to be there that needs to happen it needs to be there and and for us um for people who are in the black communities you know there, there may be some there may so what's what i found was happening uh, in kind of the wave of black lives matter movement research and George Floyd was that I was getting people contacting me saying, I didn't even know I was carrying trauma. Um, I hadn't even realised I'd been assimilating. Like, what do I do with this stuff now? Mm. So for us, there's there's a level, there's, it's just diff. We, we need to approach it differently for, for our community, but there are, for some of us, mm. some feelings of shame. Like, okay, well, why didn't I know this stuff? And, and, and But for us, you know, sometimes that, that, swallowing or mm. code switching or assimilation is literally a method of survival mm. yeah so yeah absolutely both both need to be approached with slightly different um strategies but equally with care mm. yeah what about um microaggressions i remember first coming across this term in university um and what do you what you know your TED talk really speaks to the audience about like macroaggressions, but um, so have a bit of a conversation around that. Like, how? What's the? What are they first and foremost? Um, for, for those who don't necessarily know what they are. Yeah, so they are a they are a, they are essentially a form of everyday discrimination. They're um, they originally the coin was first termed by a psychiatrist, an academic called Chester Pierce in the 70s so it's you know it's still a relatively new term for the mainstream because it's been floating around in academic spaces for quite some time but only really are we hearing that language um more recently in the mainstream 
And in its original inception, it was primary, primarily to to highlight the kind of everyday racism, um, the everyday race discrimination that African-Americans would experience um, in comparison to, to their to their white peers. Um, it's, but now there's been some more development and it includes anyone who's in, who's in an underrepresented group or a minority group. So you can receive microaggressions if you uh, are in a... If you are a woman, you can see microaggressions if you have a, a disability and, you know, or if you're in the LGBTQ community or all of the communities intersect. Mm. But essentially, it's a form of everyday discrimination that communicates that you somehow don't belong, mm-hmm. that you are somehow other, that you are somehow not the default. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we move through those things if we get if we get approached with a microaggression like what does that look like first and foremost um so i'll I'll stick with racial microaggressions so it can be anything from hair touching oh okay yeah just the uh um the sense entitlement Mm. over our bodies and to touch you know curly afro hair it can be where are you from even though you're speaking the Queen's English. Where are you from? No, no, no. Where are you really from? And then you give them an answer. London. No, where are you really from? Uh, Hackney. <laughs> no, no, no. Where are you really from? What they're asking is, you can't be from here because you're you're not white. That's mm. what is going on. That's the subtext that's going on. Um, it can be everything from a subtle, if, if a black guy comes in an elevator and a woman is there, it can be a subtle shift mm. away, a subtle clutching of the handbag. Mm. Um, it can be, I'm trying to think of other, other, other sort of behavioural ones, um, not making eye contact to black colleagues, okay. assuming that they are service staff. When they're like yeah. Edward Enninville, that's a great example. Yeah. He is an editor of Vogue mm-hmm. and he was mistaken as service staff he was walking told to into take a his own exit. building. Yeah, to, to yeah, a different you- entrance or something, yeah. Yeah, that's everyday racism, that everyday racism and microaggressions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How do we. How do we move through those? I mean, microaggressions are awful. They're just like you, yeah. you, it's the quest. It's the it's the questioning that you get. It's like you sit. You have to. You stand back and think. Do you really just me? Yeah, me. Yeah. You said this too. <laughs> um, how do we move through those? Short of losing people's tempers and causing a ruckus in the street. Well, I, <laughs> I think. There, there is an educational piece that needs to happen because some people don't even know what the language means. Mm. Um, so helping people understand what they are. And equally, you know, we also need to learn how to not swallow it. Yeah. Um, and again, I realise that that's not always easier said, easy as, as I'm, it's not as easy as I'm saying, but learning to give feedback, like what you just did there and then repeat what they did and say that, that's not okay Mm. like that is offensive that is racist whatever whatever language that may be um for some it's language like i um i did an interview with somebody for my book fairly recently and they were still using the word colored to Mm. describe black people Mm. and so they did it once and i let it drop i thought sometimes it might be a slip of the tongue so let me see and then it came again and i said are you open to me giving you feedback? So I asked them first, are you open to me giving you feedback on on language um, relating to racism? And she said, yes, absolutely. And then I said, that what you said there, and then I repeated what she said, and I said, that's actually, that's really, uh, that's racist language and that's offensive. Like, it was okay, and it was used in the height of this era, era but actually that's really harmful now. Mm. Here's an alternative instead. Slightly different because she was being interviewed for my book, which is an anti-racism book. Yeah. But I asked her first, mm. Are you, can I give you feedback on your behaviour? Yeah. Yeah. And she gave me permission. Yeah. So I think until there kind of needs to be two pieces of work that go on, people need to start to expand their awareness on what microaggressions are and also be honest about the microaggressions that they commit on a regular basis mm-hmm. and be open to receiving feedback on them without losing their, their shits. Because what <laughs> makes microaggressions more harmful than 
random over acts of hate is because they happen all of the time and they go unaddressed and they can cause more harm to our mental health because of that yeah yeah absolutely right so and and as you said the context you know the context in the example you gave was um it's obviously it's different because it comes from a place of caring you know Mm. whereas if you're in the supermarket and you hear somebody say something like are you going to fight in front of the, the flower or yeah. whatever you're going to do? And I think it's I just... I mean, that's uh, it. You've you got to choose your battles Yeah, you have to choose well. your battles. And it's like, do you have to address everything every time you hear it? Or is no. it something, you know, like, yeah. So I was going to say, like, how much emotional labour must you give these things? No, I mean, particularly for us, we can't be martyred and address every single... No every single incident it's not good for our mental health but what is good for us is if we experience what happened in a supermarket Mm. that's happened and we haven't addressed it that there's somebody who is our safe person or our community that we can talk to and get validation from them Mm. so that we don't go into this spiral of feeling like we're being paranoid did that just happen so you can get your validation there and talk out whatever you need to talk out Mm. meet your needs and move on absolutely and you spoke about language, and I always found that really interesting as well. And it's like oppressed groups come to find the language, addressing them quite quickly, and the, the oppressing group never are never usually aware of the language that is used. Do you find that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just becomes a pre- so, as you said, it is something that needs to work its way into education do you think yeah um, I think uh, yeah absolutely absolutely uh, I mean I always find it fascinating I'm like a quick google search will also tell you I'll go back to the the, the use of the word colored mm. a quick google search will show you that that word it, it, it's got the word and then next to it is is offensive mm. <laughs> unless you're talking about uh, the South African community of coloreds which is a completely different entity mm. but these things are in plain sight so mm. how is it that we've you know, how is it that as a society, let me name it, how is it that white people and people who are white privilege have come to not know these things? Mm. That's the question I ask my students. Like, And, and also Dr. Robin D'Angelo, uh, who is author of um, uh, Why White People Find It So Hard to Talk About Race, mm. she, she poses something similar. Like, we need to, we need to, why are we not, why don't we know? Yeah. It's a question. Yeah. 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 Do you think we can ever achieve race equality in our time um, at all? I think I th- we can. We can certainly get closer to it for okay. sure. Okay. Absolutely. I was finding I was a bit despondent in June, July, August. Yeah. And I was like, and I was thinking because I was watching a lot of videos and I was seeing the same conversations being had in yeah. the '90s. Um, I've seen the same conversations we had in the early 2000s. Um, There was this really moving video of three generations of men um, in, 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 I forgot which part of the States it was, but they were at a protest slash looting what was ever happening or rioting, what was ever going on. And there were three of them there, three black men, and it was like a Gen Z, it was like a Gen X and a Gen Y or whatever it is. and it was everybody was there, mm. and um, it was uh, and you know the Gen Z they like he's like sixteen and seventeen, and he yeah. kind of wanted to, you know, go in and kind of like you know fight for whatever. Um, the older guy to the Gen X guy was like, "We've been doing this for years, yeah. like you know," and he's crying and he's like, "We've been doing this for years. I don't want to have to, yeah, we don't want to have to have this story told again." Like, because I'm, I'm, he's like, what, in his 50s? He's like, and he's saying mm. this still. And then the guy yeah. in his 30s is saying, yeah. And the guy says, in between, he's like, yeah, this is what you guys have, this is what you guys have experienced. And this is what we've experienced, but we don't want this to happen for these guys. So we need to set yeah. an example in a trend. And it was all of these kind of things. It was just a really, it was an emotional tri- like trio of just yeah. like, of a really? wider story. That's just, that happens to all of us across the intergeneration. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm, and I've got like younger like children in my family, and I'm looking at them, and they're like, you know, they're really are like toddlers, and I'm like, what do I want yeah. to see for them? Yeah. <laughs> do I want to have this conversation in thirty five years time, and they're like, oh, uncle, like, this happened to me, and I'm like, well, 
this happened to me too. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? I don't want to have to say that. I wanted, I wanted to be like, this happened to us, so, but we had to kind of nip that in the bud there and there. Like, <laughs> you guys have to, like, you have to remember that, you know, I want, we want you to just not even have to worry about any of that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the honest answer is I wouldn't do this work. I wouldn't expose myself to racism. I wouldn't expose myself to trauma if I didn't think that change could happen. In saying that, I will not do this work forever either. But I think um, I'm seeing it. So I have an online anti-racism course. And again, there's only, there are small pockets of people in the world that really like, because what happens is we get what I like to call performative allyship, where people will go to a Black Lives Matter, I've literally seen it, uh, videos on, uh, on social media, where they would go to a Black Lives Matter protest, roll out their poster pose and let me it's white people with the fist have their have their husband or whatever partner friend take a picture mm-hmm. roll the thing back up and then go off in their car so it's performative and i'm not saying that everyone is doing this but there are some people who are not engaged in actually doing self-interrogation like the only people i work in my process of anti-racism is because i want to see transformation mm-hmm. i want to see you become the work so that you're seeing racism in headlines and you're writing to those um those those media law firms you're writing to ofcom you're lobbying with your mp you're campaigning for your school you're getting um historians black historians to teach black history in schools and not relying on um teachers who haven't done the work and then they start having a ripple effect on their community. So some people who are on my course, uh, one is a, uh, a biomedical scientist, for example, who's from doing my course was able to recognise. I don't know how much I can say about this. But <laughs> I'm going to say it. Mm-hmm. Be able to recognise that they, they, they're involved in the clinical trials in the vaccine for COVID. These are kinds of people that are on my course because they're on the course. They now have a wider. They're now seeing the world with a different lens. It seems obvious to us that if if people in black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups are disproportionately being impacted by that, then they need to be in the clinical trials. Trials. He observed that whatever he was working with, they weren't in. There were no um, there were no people of colour in the trials of that community. So, of course, now that they, they that's changed and there <laughs> is so. This is the ripple effect of having people who are actually doing the work properly because it's not performative it's in there every day it's in their work I have another who is a teacher at a school um who has done an overhaul of their curriculum and they've now got black history in it of course these are individual people but they have an impact in their communities so I think there's an element of of truth there are there are more people in society who don't want to do this work um, but those that are, the communities that they are impacting has a ripple effect. And to not underestimate that, we're not going to see the change we want immediately. And I think I am at peace with that now, but I am seeing it. And I think, you know, it's important for us to be realistic and also have hope. Otherwise, why bother? Yeah. Hmm. Black history in schools. Um, just because you brought it up, um, what do you think? And to, think, what, to what extent? To what extent should we I have think, it? Again, um, I think, again, I think my ideal is that it's 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 just history mm. <laughs> because it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I understand at the moment it needs to be highlighted yeah. for all the reasons we've spoken about before. Mm. I think if you've got, so I think again, like. There was some nonsense that happened a couple of years ago where a primary school teacher sent letters home to parents asking their children to come into school dressed as slaves for Black History Month. Yes, this was in the UK. I think it was a London primary school a few years ago. And the letter said um, you could get some old clothes and tea dye them with tea bags or coffee stains. Yeah. If that is all we... If you've got teachers who are educating the next generation and that is all they think of when it comes to black history then we've then houston we've got a problem Mm -hmm. and at the instead 
And there are others who are teaching really wonderful stories of uh, contributions of black British people, mm. black people who lived here pre-Windrush, pre-slavery, yeah. um, inventors, um, black women who were resilience leaders, like stories on resilience. Mm. Like There are so many other stories that can be told other than the struggle. And I think if we're teaching black history to students that's what we need to be teaching like beyond mm. the trauma porn yeah um and obviously try and get more black teachers too um more black teachers bring in experts bring in historians like that this is their area of expertise they've been researching and doing this work for years what, like bringing historians them... to become teachers or, no or to... well you could bring them in to do a talk but bring them in to help empower teachers to teach yeah. this subject because what I also hear is that there are teachers who are really worried about teaching black history because they're still nervous about even saying the word black like that's a problem <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well, I, I think my teacher one of my teachers English teacher we were watch, watching we were reading of Mice and Men and he had no qualms because I think he was like one of these forward-thinking progressive older white men um and he who loved Beyonce and Halle Berry, and it was really yeah. like weird. But um, you know, he had no qualms about it. Like he was like, "Look, yeah, this is this is the world we live in. Um, yeah. This is of mice and men. We're gonna go and we're gonna talk about the the, the whole book, you know. Um, yeah. And that's what, and that's what and I and as an English as someone who loved language and loved English itself, it was some that was something that I um I respected in him as a teacher. Um, yeah. none of the skirting around stuff that like what we had in history class yeah depends. I mean it's bizarre that we well, history is is just it's teaching us about our past and whether it's good bad or indifferent it's just history so yeah. I don't know why we have this weird thing in Britain where we can only talk about the good stuff it's very bizarre it's very weird, <laughs> it's very weird. so yeah. kind of brings me on to my last one of my last questions just how do we kind of progress and move forward to look find a sense of belonging and just understanding yeah. of you know where we fit we in are. this world yeah and who we are i think um prioritizing mental well-being is key mm. um prioritizing our well-being having those safe spaces and those support networks doing what we can to 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 build on our resilience and if we experience racism or othering that there is a community of people that we can go to immediately whether that's a phone call a group online there are so many groups online now where you can just have your experience validated because it stops that shame spiral mm. um and it stops it stops that trigger so i think prioritizing what we can do to boost our well-being and sustain it um and in, integrate not just you know, performative self-care weekends, but that we're doing it every day in our lives, that mm. we're making time for it. Um, and also, uh, this is probably a harder one, but a friendship overhaul. A friendship overhaul? Yeah. If you've got friends in your life that are gaslighting your experience, mm. then there needs to be some reflection on whether that relationship is continuing to serve you. Yes, I definitely agree. Actually, <laughs> you know what's so funny because um, I I'm, I'm persistently having friendship overhauls. Like it's actually a thing. My friend was like, "You're you're, you're persistently going through things." <laughs> I'm like, "Yes, I am," because yeah. it doesn't like you know you you pick up quite easily if, when something doesn't align with you, and you just need to yeah. kind of like really be comfortable in this life to an extent. Yeah, there's a, there's you a, need that a, sense. Yeah. that's your sense of belonging isn't it and if you can't belong if you have to change who you are when you're with your friends then that's a problem I think by all means address it mm. and try to work through it but if you're having multiple conversations and behaviours not changing why are you hanging around it's not serving you yeah, absolutely um, a final question is um, are you optimistic and yes you said that we can um, achieve a uh, racial equality in a world that is that but how optimistic are you just in general i am um i am i am honest in that we're not going to see it in our lifetime and of, of course for some people that's gonna not motivate them mm. um 
but I am hopeful for sure um, that I have never experienced in the time that I've been doing anti-racism work this kind of galvanising before. Mm. Angela Davis, who was, you know, right in the thick of the civil rights movement in the US with Dr Martin Luther King and James Baldwin, who's still with us now, still doing great work, and she's never seen such a global movement Mm. for Black Lives Matters and racial justice. So that in itself brings me hope that there is a shift. Um, I think think there's going to be some pain Mm. um, before we get to a place where things feel better, but I am hopeful and I'm mindful that also we've got a lot of work to do. Well, thank you for joining me, Nova. That was a, that was such an informative and fun conversation to have with you. Um, where can people find you? Um, what, where can they find your course and just yeah. like generally what you do? You can find me on, I mostly hang out on Instagram, uh, Nova Reed, R-E-I-D, official. I'm also on all the other socials but I'm mostly on Instagram my website is novareed.com and you can find out more about my anti-racism course there I also have an anti-racism guide which is a free resource mm-hmm. for anyone who's starting their journey and wants some tips on how to get started mm-hmm. I also have a podcast conversations with Nova Reed Amazing. and my debut book The Good Ally is available for pre-order now and that comes out next year The Good Ally Amazing All Yeah right. Well you heard it here you had everything well guys catch you guys next week thank you so much for listening to this episode guys you can get in touch with me I'm only on two social platforms that is Vero so that's Vero.co forward slash Alex Reads and Instagram at Alex Reads so you can also send me an email if you so wish uh, tttalkpod at gmail.com if you just let me know your thoughts on the episode that would be great remember to rate review and subscribe check out the episode on wherever you listen to podcasts so Spotify, Global Player, Apple Podcasts um, and have a great week and I'll catch you soon